0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is... It is May 2nd of 2013, and tonight our guest is Dr. Jeffrey Foote of the Center for Motivation and Change right here in New York City. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org. Book. Our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Foote, is right with us right now. Jeff, how are you doing this evening?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Oh, I'm doing great. Well, I want to ask you a few questions about what you do and what what is the Center for Motivation and Change.
1: Uh, we're a private group practice of psychologists who specialize in addiction treatments in uh, in Manhattan, and we've been around for about ten years now. Um, I started with my partner Dr. Kerry Wilkins, another clinical psychologist, uh, and we had worked at various places in New York City uh, prior to that. myself for about <clears throat> for about 25 years overall now, um, and I've uh, been involved in a variety of research projects and gotten federal grant funding for uh, research projects to test interventions for college binge drinkers and um, other other grants for lowering barriers for people with HIV to get addiction treatment services and uh, so forth. We finally decided about 10 years ago to open our own shop, um, and the simple version of that would be that there's, as you're you're well aware, um, very few places in the entire United States that provide um, progressive evidence-based treatments for um, substance use issues, so um, we saw that as a sort of a, a political imperative as well as a business opportunity both. So that's what we did. And um, it's been been great and, and a real success. Actually, we're a pretty large program at this point.
0: Well, how do you differ from a standard uh, rehab treatment, like a standard 12 step? Um,
1: so, um, well, there's, a couple of different words you used there. You used uh, the word rehab, which I think most people think of as an inpatient treatment program. So we're we're only outpatients, um, uh, outpatient services, and that's you know non-intensive services as well as like a day day program, more intensive day treatment services. Um, and you know the the core of the program is a, a mixture of a couple of different types of approaches. One would be cognitive behavioral approaches um, and under that, I think you'd also have dialectical behavior therapy, um, uh, and then motivational approaches. So those are the sort of sort of the core of the of the um, of the center is working with those two mainstays of evidence-based treatment, um, and that's in groups an individual, a lot of family work, and we also do this uh, thing that uh, Bob Myers and Jane Smith really sort of brought forward 20 years ago, which is CRAFT, which is the um community reinforcement and family training that's working with families so um, uh so how would we differ from all the programs I used to work in would be um that we actually do those types of treatments so we actually have every every staff member get trained in them and um be supervised supervising those ways of working um and um you know twelve as you you were comparing it with a standard twelve step program
0: you know lots of programs
1: do lots of different things and have sort of an eclectic mix um but have at the backbone often a twelve step disease model philosophy um so that's not our backbone and that's not our model um, it's not a disease model idea um I'd say you know a quarter of our clients are are involved with 12 step stuff and go to meetings and have sponsors and so forth um and they do that because it's helpful to them um and we certainly encourage people to go to 12-step meetings and, and do that whole um, route um, and explore it and see if it's helpful because for some subset of people, it's incredibly helpful. Um, we just don't insist that they do that as, as the central part of their treatments or as any part of their treatment with us specifically. So that was supposed to be the, the differences.
0: Yeah, because for some people, it can be incredibly harmful too. I'm one of those.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, in terms of getting bad advice or... Or sort of encouraging you to not talk about relapses and that kind of thing. Or,
0: um, well, I never drank as much in my life as I did when I went to AA, and I think it's because they kept telling me that alcohol was powerful and I was powerless. And my subconscious uh, must be very logical because it certainly took that message to heart. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. right. Yes, I, I was actually just saying I, I run a men's group, and I was just saying to the folks in it in the other night that I, I years ago stopped trying to predict, um, because in that group, actually, we have some people who are quite interested in self step come and go, and others who don't care for it at all. We were having a discussion about it, and I said, I, I really stopped years ago trying to predict um, who I thought would benefit from self step involvement and who wouldn't, and it's, it never ceases to amaze me, the the mix of people who are helped or not helped, so um, it's, it's a little bit of a crapshoot, This is another problem, so you never know what you're going to get.
0: Well, I have a lot of colleagues I work with in uh, needle exchange and harm reduction who they're involved in twelve step programs. They like it. I would never argue with them about it because uh, that's their that's their choice. That's their path. I think you know we should always encourage people to follow their own path. You know, the difficulty has been historically that twelve step has been imposed upon people, even when they're doing worse with it than nothing at all. You know. Right. I,
1: I agree, and I. I- I have to say, though, that I wouldn't really find as much fault with the 12-step community as I would with the professional treatment community for that problem. Because that's professional treatment programs purveying the idea that you have to be involved with 12-step programs to to do something called real recovery, you know. And that's that's, that's often not the message you would get in a 12-step meeting. Um, I mean, you mm-hmm. can, and that there's a culture that can be a little cold like that way, so... You can certainly get that message there, also, but it's really us professionals who've been pushing that idea that you have to be involved. So, you know, I I, I think that the professional field is the one that's going to have to take the blame for that really, that kind of forced choice thing.
0: Oh, I would agree very much. It's been well, it's been judges, employers. Sometimes physicians will say, you have to go to 12-step or I won't treat you. Uh, psychotherapists right. have said the same thing. So, I mean, these communities should be aware that this is not a panacea. It's not a cure-all for everyone.
1: Right, right. That would be a wonderful knowledge base to have transmitted to the entire country, but it's
0: going to take a while, I think. <laughs> well, we're getting started at least a little bit.
1: Right, Yeah, that's true.
0: Well, you mentioned that you are outpatient, and, um, you know, not so long ago, um, Charlie Sheen was, uh, you know, kind of in the news, and Dr. Drew was saying, the only thing that you can do, it has to be inpatient, it has to be rehab, it has to be groups, but uh, you don't agree with that.
1: (laughs) You're baiting me by talking about Dr. Drew, aren't you? Um
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm giving you Um
1: a nice target to shoot at here, because...
0: (laughs) (laughs) right. Well,
1: I'll put my gun down and say that uh yeah i i that's not true and in, in fact it, it's interesting that that's actually an area of i think the the professional addiction treatment world that has started to shift and actually has shifted significantly over the last thirty years is the idea that rehab is what treatment is I think it's unfortunately still part of the cultural understanding um because the very the very the, the, the dr Drews of the world the very sort of dramatic reality TV type of version of, of addiction and addiction treatment is made much more exciting by having it be all about interventions and, and inpatient treatments um, with, you know, former stars from TV and things like that. I mean, it's just horrifying and, and, but it's dramatic. So it, it does un- unfortunately sift back into the culture, that idea that rehab is what treatment is. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's, it, you know, the fact is that the number of people who need rehab is actually quite low relative to the number of people who really could use some help, um, and uh, it's just kind of an inverted system. I mean, it, it, and I mean, frankly, part of their problem was initially when the treatment system started at a professional level back in the 50s, that is all there was. It was just inpatient treatment. Um, so that was sort of a, a structural reason why that why people thought of it that way, but that's certainly not true now. Um, uh, so, you know, rehab has its place for sure. Um, and I think there's there is a small but but uh, distinct group who really can benefit from rehab. Um, it's just most people don't need it. That's all.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, the other problem that really happens with inpatient rehab is it isolates you from real life, from your community, from the life you have to go back to. And in the traditional model, you're like... Um, you know, isolated totally for 28 days, and then you're dumped suddenly right back into the same place you were before, and it seems like people aren't prepared to transition at all when they when they do that sort of movement.
1: Right, I, I couldn't agree more. And actually, I've just been reading through this Mister attached to what the last couple of days, and uh, Bill Miller, who's one of the you know founders of motivational interviewing work, uh, uh, was commenting on the whole question about the in, the Necessity or Not, of Inpatient Rehab. Um, and there's been a really good book that came out about a month and a half ago called Inside Rehab by Ann Fletcher, mm-hmm. uh, which is just an excellently written book. Um, but she sort of talks about the whole industry and the lack of standardization and the lack of evidence-based approaches being used and so forth um, at that most expensive level of care. And that's true. It's a, the most expensive level of care and it's probably got the least um, – uh, high standards in terms of actually what kind of treatment is being pervade there. Um, but anyway, the, the question was, uh, overall, is it, a, is it an effective level of care? Bill Miller's comment was that there's no evidence of it being more effective than outpatient, and people need to learn how to live their lives, need to learn how to deal with triggers, and all that stuff. You know, that, that's certainly been my line for 20 years also, and I think that's wholly true. Um, it really doesn't mean that nobody ever needs rehab, however. And Mm -hmm. uh, my argument would be that 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 I deal with rehabs constantly. And some of them are good, and a lot of them are terrible. And one of the things that's terrible is exactly what you just said, which is there's no connection made back to life. So people go away um, and spend 28 days dealing with issues, but they're really terrible at, at, first of all, connecting those back to how are you going to navigate your life um, and second of all, connecting them back to actual resources in their life or jumping, jumping them out the door. And the typical thing is to go to a 90-90, you know, 90 AA meetings in 90 days. Um, and if you get professional treatment, that's fine. But it's um, very poorly planned, typically, um, on discharge, which is really an outrage when you think about the fact that not only are they spending that much money, but the only reason they went to rehab is because of the severity of the, of the issues that were going on. So to just discharge them and say, okay, good luck, you know, have a good life is really, really pretty outrageous. Um, but I'm I, I actually sort of making the case that I think rehab is is necessary at times, um, and just typically badly done is, is the is the major part of the problem. So,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well, it would be nice, and I think some programs do do this. They're not so common, but they will have. Following the inpatient, they will have an outpatient um uh, you know follow up where they help you transition back. And I think that's rare, but I do think some programs do that
1: right right they do it sometimes um and they call them step down programs and in my experience is the step down programs are actually really under supervised and uh understaffed and they're kind of this i don't know for lack of a nice way of putting it I think they're way to make to make money, I think it's a completely reasonable idea to have a step-down level of care. I just think they're typically not run very well, so uh, they could be, again, much more beneficial to people than they actually are.
0: Okay. I just want to mention for our listeners that uh, our last show a couple of weeks ago, our guest was Ann Fletcher, and we did talk about the book Inside Rehab, which is just a really excellent book. If you're considering any treatment at all, get this book first. That's that's all I can say about that. Um it's a great book. Yeah, good. Well written. Uh let's go on to some of the specifics about what you do. And uh, you talked about craft and I want to go into craft first. We did also have Bob Myers on oh a long time ago and talked about craft a little bit. So uh tell us some more about craft.
1: So craft is a um is an evidence based approach for families. Um and you know, the classical version of craft is, that developed by Bob was—it's an extension of the community reinforcement approach, which is a very effective, uh, very effective cognitive-behavioral uh, type of approach for the primary substance user. Um, craft was developed really using a lot of the same strategies, but then it was it basically geared toward the families, um, and, and they initially designed it for um, the description of that would be for the the family member of someone who's reluctant to get help. So, you know, some somebody calls me up and says, my husband is drinking and he won't stop, and what am I supposed to do? He won't listen and he won't go to treatment. So that person is a great candidate for craft. Um And, you know, that's a fairly typical presentation, um, is a family member using substances, not really wanting to deal with it, and the, the family is sort of at their wit's end. Um, and what we know, you know, is that, the typical response to that is gonna be either um, do an intervention um, or uh go to Al Anon. You can't help him, you know, let let go and let him get bottom and you can take care of yourself. Um, and you know, the Al Anon version of that, attached with love, is is a reasonable statement to make to the family member in terms of them doing some better self care and, and um not having their entire life revolve around this this sort you of know, nightmare that's going on. Um, it does nothing to help their substance abusing family member. It, it does help them, encourage them to take better care of themselves, which is a good thing. Um, interventions are a nightmare and are, you know, have wild claims of success. You you literally couldn't find an interventionist website who didn't claim a 90% success rate or better, um, which is, of course, flat out, made up, um, and they don't even keep statistics, so they wouldn't have any idea how well they were doing. But if you do actual head-to-head comparisons in, in research studies, interventions are effective at about a 30% rate in terms of getting the person to accept treatment. Um, so CRAFT is not that. CRAFT has about a 70% engagement rate with the, with the identified patients and um, also really helps the family take better, better care of themselves. And it's basically teaching them to be real behavioral therapists. It's giving them behavioral therapy training um, them, uh, and using a lot of positive reinforcement, um, as the as the central strategy. So you're teaching them positive communication skills, because communication is typically sort of gone to hell in a handbasket, um, at, by that point. Um, you're teaching them self-care strategies, how to, how to step away and take care of themselves. You're teaching them a lot about reinforcing, um, constructive behaviors on their loved ones part. Uh, and you're teaching them to step away from negative behaviors and not getting involved in those kind of fights. So, um, so that's the program. It's really based on reinforcement and the idea that your loved one is not using substances because they're crazy, but because they're getting something out of it. And you can help change the environment in which they're existing and reward non substituting and positive behaviors and don't get involved in the substituting behaviors. Um, uh, and it really really changes the whole nature of the relationship and changes the receptivity of the person who's using the substances and makes it much more likely that they're going to accept some sort of um, some sort of suggestion to make some changes, whether that's professional help or or not. It's um, just going to be more receptive and less defensive, and that's the, the central idea of it. So it's a, it's a great... Ther- therapists love doing it because it's just... You're always working with family members who are really highly motivated, which is a great thing.
0: Yeah, I believe the subtitle of Bob Meyer's book is Alternatives to Nagging and Pleading. And I think often, you know, in a relationship with a loved one with an addiction, they they get into really terrible communication patterns that really need to be changed.
1: Very much. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And even if they well, even if communication was basically solid in those relationships prior to that, you know. With the advent of substitutes and and with the advent of sort of i by definition they're calling you because there's a clashing and a, and a lack of ability to work together on it so you're you're really giving them strategies for how to change communication patterns and be kinder and more effective and more efficient with each other in ways that'll actually you know allow communication to occur, which is hugely hugely transformative often so
0: Okay, we mentioned motivational interviewing a little earlier. Uh, tell me a little more about motivational interviewing.
1: Uh, so, motivational interviewing was, uh, is, is a set of uh, strategies and a sort of a a, a, a uh, approach. Um, this is sort of like the music of motivational interviewing is a little bit different than just the strategies of it, but it's a it's a way of engaging someone. Um, that's geared toward to geared to helping them feel less defensive, lowering their resistance to kind of engaging and thinking about making changes, um, allowing them to think through the process, um, sort of a, in a more cost benefit kind of way, allowing them to not feel like they have to defend their territory, but, uh, and if you're not accusing them of things that you're just, you know, sort of trying to elicit from them, um, a description of what's going on. And, um, and help them think through if that's where they want to be and what they might do if that's not where they want to be. So as opposed to coming in with a mandate, which would be the more traditional approach of, you know, clearly what you're doing is not good and I'm here to help you do something different. That's not typically regardless of whether it's substance issues or any, any life issues. It's a, it's a sort of a tried and true strategy for getting people to be more defensive and and backed up against the wall. So, not approach them with a, an agenda about what you want them to do, but approach them much more collaboratively. Um, uh, you're much more likely to collaborate. <laughs> so, um, and it's you know it's one of the principles. And I keep using the word evidence-based, but one of the evidence-based principles from you know 40 years of psychotherapy and substance uh, treatment research is that working with people in a collaborative uh, manner. Respectful, non-judgmental, collaborative manner is incredibly effective, um, it's sort of regardless of the approach. Um, so, motivational interviewing certainly personifies that sort of collaborative, respectful approach.
0: So, the old um, idea of uh, confronting denial that doesn't work, but is is there denial? Does it exist? Uh, how, what do you think of denial?
1: Well, you know, Bill well, Miller no, and the motivational interviewing people. Um, <clears throat> would say, and I think it was, a, uh, was a sort of a brilliant contribution of, of motivational interviewing was to understand um, motivation as a as a dance, motivation as a, as a collaboration, and as, as something that's manufactured between two people as opposed to a trait in one in one of the people. Um, so, you know, again, the traditional view would be he's either motivated or he's not, he's in denial or he's accepting what, is, what his disease is, sort of this, you know, on-off, Black and white kind of versions of reality, um, and the motivational literature would say um, it's a manufactured construct. You, you you work with someone and develop motivation together, and if you approach them one way, you can get them to be to look not motivated. If you approach them another way, you can get them to be quite motivated, um, and that's really contingent on how you approach them. Uh, so obviously, it's not a quantity within them; it's an interaction between you and them. Um, so to the question of denial, I think that this is not true a hundred percent of the time, but certainly denial, I think of mostly as an iatrogenic, you know, caused by the treatment system kind of phenomenon. Um, and it's not by the treatment system, just by the culture. You're talking about behaviors that people don't feel good about, feel ashamed about, are illegal at times, um, are looked down upon, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you're doing stuff like that, um, you don't feel great about it, you don't want to talk about it, and if someone is demanding that you talk about it, demanding that you fess up about it, you're gonna get people really backing away. Um you know, we 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 often say, you know, if someone used cocaine the night before and missed work, um, you know, they're not going to go in and say, Hey, I missed work because I just put a bunch of blow out, I'm sorry. That that would actually be a bad decision on their part. Um um because they'd get fired. So it's actually a reasonable choice to say it's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to tell everybody what's going on with me. Um, but you can really get yourself back to the corner, and then people are insisting that you tell them what you're doing, and so forth. Uh, and then it then it becomes something called denial, which is I'm, I'm I'm not doing anything, and you're crazy, and I'm not going to tell you that I'm doing anything. So I think we we saw a lot of that in people in terms of their reactions. Um, <clears throat> I have to say there is another phenomenon that I have found across a number of times in my 25 years of doing this, which is um, sometimes people have a what I have found to be a utterly impenetrable, perplexing lack of apparent awareness of their own behavior. So I have had people tell me they're not drinking when they're reeking of alcohol, and I think they kind of think it's true. Um, uh, or they think it isn't a problem despite the fact that there are enormous objective problems going on due to their substance use. So there is this thing that happens, I think, in people's brains that makes it hard for them to process what's actually going on, and I have a healthy respect for that process, and that might be something that's actually worthy of being called denial, <laughs> but I don't use it as a pejorative. I use it sort of a flaw in my voice that, that actually happens to people, and they actually have no idea what the hell is going on, um, and it's frightening. Um, but that's not what most people mean by denial. I think most people mean when they say denial, they mean you're a liar. Is what they mean. So.
0: hmm Yeah, my case was kind of interesting because I just never had any denial, and you know, when I started getting in trouble, and I I did always say like to my boss, well, I missed work because I was drunk last night, and I couldn't wake up in the morning. And it's like, yeah. well, you can't do that. It's like, <laughs> but I didn't have, I've always kind of been that way, you know, where, um, you know, I've, well, in the past I was very tactless and I was very honest. So when I went through traditional treatment and they kept telling me that I had to confess that I was, a, com- I had to confess I was a pathological liar because all alcoholics are pathological liars. And I would say. No, I'm a pathological truth teller. It always gets me in trouble. They didn't
1: want
0: Yeah, they didn't want to hear that. that. Right.
1: You mm-hmm. right. no, and those are and those are some of the some of the cultural baggage and pejoratives attached to the whole disease concept. That I think is is very very uh, destructive. And um, <clears throat> it's an interesting thing. Sometimes people have these sort of academic b- debates about whether it's a disease or whether it's not a disease, and um, uh, you know, I, I think it's a, it sort of doesn't matter. What, what, what matters to me as a trick person is that I know the damage done by the labels um, and the labeling. I know the cultural baggage that goes along with the labels. With the label addict, you know, um, mm-hmm. with the labels denial, with the labels codependence, and they just don't help anything. They actually just hurt people. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: so <clears throat> that's unfortunately some of the cultural baggage I think that goes along with this uh substance abuse issues um and it's just it's a shame.
0: Yeah, in our program our our members always say I encourage them to say that they are people that want to make a positive change in their drinking habits.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think yep, that's, that's great.
1: good. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and then you're encouraging the change and you're encouraging them to be open about what they're doing and um you know, we have we have people in our program and I, again I would say this is probably we're probably one of the few Programs in the country where we actually allow people to have moderation as a goal um, and not, not a lot of people choose that as a goal um, but some people do and mm-hmm. you know, my basic rap with people when they want to moderate is look, I'll tell you if I think that's a crazy goal and my reasons for thinking it is crazy would be your history the severity of the potential consequences if you're not successful um, you know, you're going to blow a vein out in your neck if you drink again. That, that's not a smart path then if you're wanting to try to do that. Um, and I'll tell you that if I think that. That doesn't mean that you can't go ahead and try to do it anyway because it's your life. Um, but I'll tell you my honest opinion about what the likelihood of that being a success is. Um, and then there's a whole other group of people who, my sense is, I have no idea whether you can do that or not. Um, and let's let's collect the data together. And this is not a laissez-faire moderation attitude of like, whatever, you know, if you want to try that, that's fine. It's, it's because the next thing I say to people is, this is so much harder than abstinence, it's unbelievable. Um, and this is not the default setting from, I don't feel like being abstinent, so I'm just going to moderate. This, to mm-hmm. me, is the treatment goal. It, and if it's the treatment goal, we're monitoring it together and we're seeing whether it's actually working. Just like mm-hmm. we're seeing whether abstinence is working. And if it's not working, then we need to change our strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's work at it together for two weeks or four weeks and set our goals to figure out what the obstacles are just like we would with that um, and um, you tell me whether it's working or not and you'll come back and you'll say I wanted to drink three days a week two, no more than two drinks and on two of those days I drank five drinks and let me try it again another week and see how it goes and that happens for three weeks and then we go together we say you know what this doesn't seem to be working right now um, I don't have any Pre-investment in whether it's going to work or not. If it works, that's great. Um, I just want to honestly collect the data together and see where it is. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Well, then we also have uh, people who they don't su- they don't succeed with abstinence, and they're not going to succeed with moderation. But uh, you know, I think the fallback position for those people is harm reduction to try to help them to be as safe as possible until they maybe do eventually achieve abstinence.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you. And I think harm reduction as a sort of a public health stance is incredibly important. Um, view to have on all this stuff. I mean, you know, motivational work is is a has a lot of overlap with harm reduction. They're not the same thing, uh, but uh, motivational work I think shares shares the territory of. look, the important thing is for you to start where you want to start, um, and work from there, and we'll work with you you know, in, a, in an earnest way from that starting point. doesn't mean we agree with the starting point. doesn't mean we can get the safest starting point, but it is a starting point that we're all agreeing on, you know. Um, and I think that's, that's the overlap with harm reduction, which I think makes all the sense in the world.
0: Now, my own personal experience uh, in this comes from, you know, I set my goal uh, to be, you know, abstain six days a week, one day a week when it's not a work night, you know, I will drink a fifth of whiskey, but I'll drink at home and be safe and not go out and get, not get in trouble. And that would be my goal. And you know, when I was when I talked to people about that, it's like you're not allowed to do that. That's not an, you can't do that goal. It's forbidden.
1: <laughs> right. Uh, why? Because that's that, why. Wouldn't, why can't you do that goal?
0: Well, it's not moderate drinking, and it's not abstinence. So you're you're diseased. Right. Gotcha. Right. Gotcha. Right. And and you're not allowed to cut back from say getting drunk four nights a week to getting drunk one night a week. That's not that's not acceptable, you know. It's like, why right. not? Isn't that better? <laughs> it's like
1: Right, yeah. Much better. Right. Right. But that's where you run into the excuse me, the the moral underbelly of the whole treatment culture, right? Is that kind of attitude. That's just wrong. There must be something wrong with that. It's not an empirical question anymore, it's a moral question. <laughs> Absolutely. The empirical, the empirical information would
0: be it's a hell of a lot better
1: than a Fortnite That's 100% correct. The moral view would be yes, yeah, but you're still doing this thing that I don't like.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know? So that's why in our program, I mean, we tell people. You can make your own goal. You know, if uh, you decide you want to get drunk every night of the week, but you want to stop drinking and driving because you think drinking and driving is a stupid idea, you don't want to do it anymore, we will say that's a good goal because you'll be safer, and so will everybody else.
1: Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I agree with you.
0: Well before I get too sidetracked off the interview let's go back to the Center for Motivation and Change and one of the things that you do there is dialectical behavioral therapy and tell me about that
1: sure um, it, um, it, it was an approach developed by Marshall Linehan out of the University of Washington probably 25 years ago um, I think she was a graduate student with Alan Marlatt who sort of one of the great thinkers in the addiction treatment field for years and years until he passed away um, and I think she was his, one of his graduate students, and um, I think she has come out recently in the press that she had borderline personality disorder herself and struggled with a lot of self-harm and self harming behaviors and so forth. Um, but luckily, there's was also a really good clinician and smart person who wanted to help people with that kind of struggle. So she developed biological behavior therapy, which is a, a variant of cognitive behavioral therapy with behavioral therapy different bells and whistles, um, it's more geared towards, um, the severity of borderline personality disorder, um, presentation, which is much more, uh, includes much more suicidal behaviors and high risk behaviors, uh, very, very wildly shifting emotional states, bad relationship skills, these kind of things that are part and parcel with, with that kind of, uh, personality disorder. And, um. So that's a group of folks who are really pretty miserable a lot and at high risk a lot. Um, um, and a, it is an evidence-based approach for borderline personality disorder and quite, quite an effective one. Um, it, uh, I think, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that a lot of people with borderline personality disorder also have substance problems, um, it started to seem, I think, like a natural marriage um, to bring some of that work into substance use fields. Um now, truth be told, I think they started developing a sub- substance abuse version of PBT back in the 90s, and they sort of seem to, like, never finish it fully, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I may just not, be, not be up on it very well. But, um, but nonetheless, and I don't exactly know how this happened, but it became, like, the sexiest thing in the world to do. So, um, one of the problems in lots of treatment programs, mostly inpatient programs, is that they, for years in inpatient rehabs, have said, we do dual diagnosis treatment. In other words, you can have substance problems, you can have other psychiatric disorders, and we'll treat everything. Um, And what they really meant by that is nothing. They meant, we'll go and do our 12-step thing, and we'll have a psychiatrist here talk to you once a week, and we'll call that a psychiatric program, Mm -hmm. or we'll be a a psychiatric program, and we'll send you twelve step meetings while you're here, and we'll call that a dual diagnosis program. Um, and one of the things that's happened in the last seemingly ten years is inpatient rehabs have gotten all crazy about wanting to bring DBT into their programs. So the two things I would say about it: one is it's not an evidence-based approach for substance problems. It's just a, a bunch of cool CBT strategies that are very helpful and intuitively make a lot of sense to use for substance use populations. Um, um, because of, you know, lots of folks have had trauma, lots of folks have emotional struggles, <laughs> lots of folks have difficulty staying in their own, living in their own skin, <laughs> which might be a reason that they started using substances more heavily than someone else in the first place. So a lot of the skills that you would learn in DBT are quite applicable. It's just that it hasn't been field tested in randomized controlled trials very much in that group. Um, so it sort of intuitively makes sense. Um, the second thing I'll say about it is um, it's now being adopted as the other way that inpatiary has to say, guess what say they do dual diagnosis they say we do d b t and look we do evidence based treatment now in addition to all of our 12 step stuff so in that sense I, I have a little bit of a negative feeling about it but um that 's just sort of the way it started to roll into the culture. um We use it as part of our day program we have several d b t groups as part of our more intensive program skills that are taught are very helpful, um, and then we have some freestanding DBT groups, which um, so somebody might be coming and coming in for a once a week individual therapy session and a once a week DBT group, and learning those skills over the course of you know three or four months type of thing. And it's just a it's a helpful set of cognitive behavioral skills basically um, uh, that are that people find very really useful. But part of the part of the sort of easternish um, Addition to just a regular CBT protocol is the addition of the mindfulness aspect of it um, into a CBT protocol. So, CBT has a big mindfulness component, um, which is just helping people be basically more aware, more aware of themselves, more aware of their internal states, uh, more aware of the world around them, more aware of their own reactivity. Um, and again, those can be very useful skills for people struggling with substance issues. So, um, it's interesting. It's helpful. It's uh, cool. You And it's all the rage.
0: Yeah, and a lot of pieces of DBT can be readily adapted for self-help, I think. Um, I know there's a DBT self-help website online. We've also suggested quite often to members of our group uh, things from this, like um, you can make tea and make tea with your full concentration or sweep the floor and sweep the floor with your full concentration. And people say – Wow, I really like this. This was really helpful. So,
1: yeah, totally helpful. And I, I, I know, I'll say I, I, I'm the <clears throat> I I've worked with professional baseball players. I worked with the New York Mets, and um, and I I use my full of skills with baseball players because it's part of, uh, of sports psychology. Also, is in terms of focus and attention and concentration. You know, if, if you're <laughs> if you're a major league baseball player and you need to um, uh, and you're a, you a need to hit better, um, it's really helpful still to be able to focus on the present moment. And the present moment is some guy is throwing a baseball at 90 miles an hour at me, um, and I need to actually have my full concentration on this particular event right now. Um, and if I'm focused on the fact that I struck out two times the last time I came up, and the fact that if I strike out again, the fans are going to start bullying me, and if I hit a double... Everyone's going to think I'm great. Then I'm not in the present moment at all, uh, or less, and I'm actually much less able to hit the baseball effectively. Uh, so I always find it just a fascinating overlap with sports psychology, also, which has a lot of a lot of focus on on that attending to the present and being able to let go of your fears about the future and your recriminations about what just happened in your sport. You know, the last time I was at bat, or the last shot I took, or the, whatever it
0: is well we've mentioned several times quite a few times on the show evidence-based treatments and i think we have to be really cautious when you know rehab programs uh or therapists start telling us that their program is uses these evidence-based uh treatments as to whether yeah. do they really use them the same way they were used in the research study or do they just do anything they want to and just call it by the same name uh, Door number two. <laughs> yeah, door number two is very often the the case.
1: Yeah, it's really you, you can really see it when you go if you go to any rehab website right now. It's just littered with evidence-based this, evidence-based that, and you know I got to say I know I know these folks, and that's not what they're doing most of the time. Um, there's a couple of them that are, and a mm-hmm. bunch of them that aren't, and. Mm-hmm. um <clears throat> People have learned as a marketing issue that they're supposed to say evidence-based. Um and it's really, really unfortunate and a bunch of nonsense. It's sort of like, like health food. It's healthy. This is healthy food. They get to say whatever you want to on food labels. It doesn't have to be in anything at all. There's just nobody regulating it. So, the same is true of rehab. They can sort of say whatever they want to. There is the, <clears throat> the criteria for evidence-based. It, it sort of depends on your state, your, your country, uh, uh, uh your professional circle, you know i mean it's really um really quite variable and uh somewhat of a minefield, so
0: yeah, we were talking about with uh ann Fletcher um in some cases, you know it's the it's it's the treatment programs that are aimed at the poor and the indigent that are run on government contracts are sometimes the ones that are held to the strictest standards and give you the best treatment.
1: That's right, and they've gotten the best training in those programs. The, the staff has gotten the best training. It's totally true. Yep.
0: Well, I think we're running to the end of the show now, so tell us, uh, where can people find you?
1: Um, you can find us at our website, um, which is motivationandchange.com. It's all letters, motivation A- A- N- D, change.com. Um and we have a lovely website and lots of resources there, and increasingly more and more resources there um, and uh we're actually we just handed over our book to our publisher uh yesterday so we're we're going to have a book out um next probably next February or March of two thousand fourteen um for families, basically talking a lot about craft and other approaches, and just a real practical view of uh not just crafts, but a practical view of how to navigate the treatment world, which is a pretty insane place to try to navigate, especially as a novice and the stuff that people hear and are told is really outrageous. So um, we're going to have that book come out also, which will be great.
0: Well, that's excellent. I didn't even know you had a book coming out, but we'll have to have either you or Carrie back for for when the book comes out so we can talk about that.
1: We will. That would be great.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much for being our guest this evening.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. It's been fun.
0: And thank you, everyone, for listening, and good night, everyone.